0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji.
0: I'm Gene Demby.
2: And you are listening to Code Switch.
1: From NPR.
2: So the news just, like, just came in that Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee for president, paid Kamala Harris, the junior senator from California, to be his running mate.
1: That's right. And that makes her the first Black woman to be on a major party ticket as vice president Mm -hmm. and the first South Asian as well. This is a historic moment, and it underlines the themes of this episode, which we started working on before this news broke.
2: Mm -hmm. Because... Kamala Harris is a, let's say, a polarizing figure, especially among the people we were planning to talk about today. That is, black Democrats. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Kamala Harris a little bit later. But first, you remember way back last year, Shereen, when we dove into the particular outlier universe of black Republicans yes, and all the weird contradictions and tensions between the people who identify as black Republicans
1: (laughs) oh yes I I definitely remember that and to me one of the takeaways from that episode was that black Republicans don't seem to like or trust other black Republicans (laughs) you know you think there's so few that they'd be tight they'd be like in it to win it together but that was not the case.
2: <laughs> not at all. I've never heard more people get called an Uncle Tom than when I, like, studied Black Republic like, talking to Black Republicans. Like, about they, other Black About other Black Republicans. Like, it was just like, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, as we said, today we're talking about the other side of the game, as Erica Badu might say, at least in our two-party system, the other side of the game, that is the happy family of Black Democrats. I'm
3: not gonna knock Kamala, I'm not going to knock Stacey. Regard, regardless of what their optics may be right right, right. Well, i think but I, that, I, I, think, I
4: do think that her optics are better than um yeah but uh, look, kamala can I, can, and can, can i finish kamala and uh susan rice yeah can i finish so they're definitely out of it for me cuz i'm not I, 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 can I, I let me finish real quick okay. now. so hmm. i
1: think not quite as happy and on the same page as some may have been imagining jean
2: oh not at all and that's from one actual family of black democrats We're going to hear more from them in just a second. But, you know, these days you hear a lot about how black folks are the base, the beating heart of the Democratic Party.
1: And that in a presidential election, if you want to win the Democratic primary, you have to win black voters. Black voters, one big, happy family. All black voters want the same things. At least that seems to be what Joe Biden thinks.
0: Yes. And by the way. What you all know, but most people don't know, unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things.
2: Mm -hmm. There's also this idea that having a black woman on the ticket will be a guarantee to turn out those black voters in November. But the thing is, those many black Democrats... Want very different things from their candidates.
1: Right. And here's an example. Let's talk about Kamala for a second. Mm -hmm. You've got the K-Hive, right? Mm -hmm. That's the Kamala lovers. And then there's the hashtag Kamala is a cop constituency. All black Democrats not wanting the same things.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And in case you're confused, those people calling Kamala a cop are not saying it (laughs) As a compliment. Uh, Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. This idea that is sometimes used in political science called a captured constituency. It's this idea that in this two-party system that we have, certain voting blocks are just stuck with one party who can take them for granted because the voters in that block have nowhere else to go.
1: And black voters are often presented as the quintessential captured constituency because, as we've talked about before... Voting for Republicans is usually a complete non-starter for most black folks. Mm -hmm. But as we can see, being part of a captured constituency doesn't mean that it looks like a coherent constituency once you start fiddling around under the hood. It
2: also just glosses over all the ways that black Democrats within the party try to wield their agency to make the party do what they want. So, yes... In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the messy conversations among Black Democrats, which have really come to the foreground in this big, monumental election cycle that y'all may have heard of. <laughs> some of these debates are happening within the same families, mm-hmm. like between that mother and daughter we just heard from.
4: Um, I'm Denise Walker-Hall, you mother... speak up, Mom. Say it again. S- say it louder. Okay. Uh, I'm, uh, my name is Denise Walker-Hall. I am retired, and uh, I am the mother of Taryn Hall.
3: Thanks. My name is Taryn. I am a writer and a consultant slash freelancer. And I'm here with my mom to talk politics, I guess.
2: Like a lot of black families, and especially black women, Denise and Taryn take voting real, real seriously. Denise said her grandmother grew up in Mississippi, so there were poll taxes and all sorts of other, you know, barriers and hurdles to black folks who were trying to vote. Mm -hmm. And so Denise's people have become a voting-ass family. She's never not voted in a local election, <laughs> in a presidential election, and she passed that on to her daughter, Taryn. When Taryn was in college at Hampton and was finally old enough to vote, she made the trip back home to Richmond, Virginia to cast a ballot for the first time alongside the rest of her family.
3: And grandma, granddad, I think Sam, is my brother and sister, were there. My mom. Was there a dog? I feel like there was probably a dog involved, too. <laughs> I remember it was like a... Went across the street, went into this, the place... And voted, and like they were like, it was like I had become like a full adult
1: because like I had voted. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I love that story.
2: <laughs> um, so Sarah said there are probably a whole bunch of other adulthood rituals that she missed, but that one, that one was really important to her.
3: I just I remember I just remember feeling so like excited, like I had made my family proud. He yeah, did. And they were like, they were hype. Like, it was just like, it's a party.
1: <laughs> Turn up to vote. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but as we've been hinting at, Shereen, uh, it's not all fun and games. Because, yes, Denise and Taryn, like the overwhelming majority of black voters, are Democrats. But they have very different priorities in the voting booth. And this election cycle, they were backing very different candidates. Doing the primary.
1: Hmm. Warning.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: going to ask a question right now that may come off as rude. I, mm-hmm. Our Taste, teammate pace. Karen Grigsby-Bates has written etiquette books. Uh, I know this is a no-no. Sorry, KGB. Um, but I need to know, how old is Denise? <laughs> uh,
2: that's a good question. Uh, Thank that's you. A relevant question. So Denise is in her early 60s. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I'm allowed to say. Uh, and so she's a boomer, obviously.
1: All right. So I'm guessing she's Team Biden.
2: Very much so.
4: Thinking back, you know, I was, you know, that was the only person I would have was considering voting for. I think it wasn't as much for him as I didn't, um, I was not attracted to the people that were running. Because, you know, um, the, somebody that you know and someone who has a history, uh, he was uh, Barack Obama's running mate. I'm a fan of Barack Obama.
1: Um and and it was somebody that I knew, someone that she knew. Hmm. That is definitely a sentiment we've heard from a lot of Black Democrats. Yes, in Denise's age group.
2: Yes, absolutely. Tara, meanwhile, like a lot of younger Black Democrats, is to the left of her mother. She was ride or die for Elizabeth Warren huh. so much so that during the primaries, she dropped her dog Jodice, off with her mom. <laughs>
1: Jodacy, I think that's a great dog name it's a
2: great dog name
1: forever my lady it's, it's like, like a dream. dream
2: so she moved
1: forever <laughs> my lady alright I'm done
2: so Sarah moved from Richmond Virginia where she lives to Boston <laughs> to work on Elizabeth Warren's campaign
1: ooh a young black woman moving to Boston mm. of all places mm. of their own volition mm. She must have loved Elizabeth Warren. Ooh,
2: couldn't be me. But she said she liked it. You know, Boston's a big immigrant community. She said the food was bomb, the music was bomb. Anyway, while Tarrant was in Boston working for the Warren campaign, her job was to organize staffers who were going out into the streets and knocking on doors and making the case for Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. And so when she was doing that, she was also trying to make that same soft sell to her mom. Oh,
3: yeah. There were different times where like my mom would bring up certain things and I would push back and be like, well, she wants to implement this policy for us. And this is how it could impact us like materially in our lives. Right. Around health care, around um, student loans, around maternal mortality. A lot of it was me saying, hey, mom, like this is how I think our lives could be better if you voted for this candidate. Would, how did you I want to know how you perceived that, mom.
4: I took it and thought about it. Mm hmm. And, you know, and I and she did have some good policies. And I was thinking that maybe even though Biden, she would be a good, great vice presidential pick because she knows how to govern. Mm -hmm. She has all those great policies and she's used to uh, D.C. So Mm -hmm. she did have that. But as a presidential candidate,
1: no. Whoa. Right. So she has all these things. Mm -hmm. She is used to D.C., but. No, not a no. presidential candidate.
2: Nope. Hmm. And you can hear this difference, right? So Taryn wanted this bold and specific policy action. And her mom, her mom was using this very different calculus. When we saw it, Denise said a presidential election is a popularity contest.
1: So it doesn't matter if your preferred candidate has good policies if they're not popular.
2: Exactly. So Denise basically was gaming out who she thought other voters might find electable. Mm. And again, the same generational debate was playing out all over the place.
1: Right.
5: I remember being at a Bernie Sanders event at Morehouse, and there was a son whose father was kind of unsure.
1: I was wondering when Bernie was going to make an appearance in this episode.
5: (laughs) So
2: that's Ested Herndon. He's a national political reporter for The New York Times
5: but uh, a Morehouse student who had come and was clear and voting for Bernie and was kind of working on their father.
1: So this is just like Taryn and her mom, Denise, but obviously we're talking about Bernie Sanders instead of Elizabeth Warren.
2: Right, right, right. And instead wrote about all these family tensions that he kept seeing when he was reporting. It was last fall, just before the primaries really got underway. And that story had probably my favorite ever New York Times headline. (laughs) quote, young black voters to their Biden supporting parents. Is this your king?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Is this your king?
5: We knew that Biden's support from the day he entered the Democratic primary was uh, was driven by older black voters. And um, we also knew that younger voters weren't really siding with Biden.
1: Yeah. Many younger black voters have been ambivalent toward Joe Biden. And I'm just going to say ambivalent because there's there's been a range Mm -hmm. of feelings towards Mr. Biden. But we'll say ambivalent. (laughs) Biden famously or infamously joined forces with Southern segregationists like Strom Thurmond in the Senate in the 80s to oppose voluntary busing programs for desegregation. Then there was. The 1994 crime bill, Mm -hmm. it's coming up again in this election, Uh, that gave money to states to build more prisons and help ratchet up the war on drugs.
2: And right now, when many of those younger voters are asking to radically rethink things like the criminal justice system, and we should also mention, importantly, that it's a criminal justice system that younger people are way, 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 way more likely to be swept up in than their parents and their grandparents.
1: Good point. Uh,
2: Biden's stances on those and other issues have garnered him a whole lot of sada
5: and so you have these interesting family dynamics that would play out, where you had younger people who were more interested in things like student debt cancellation, or breaking up big tech, or uh, major criminal justice reform. Uh, uh, actually, you know, kind of pushing their parents to think outside of the kind of strict electability lens, which Biden had really motivated people through. And sometimes I think people are surprised because they underrate the degree to which young voters are are really motivated by policy.
2: You got to remember that most people are not voting for candidates based on policy positions. They vote on these old tropes, you know, Mm -hmm. Can I get a beer with this person or, you know, do they seem presidential, whatever that means?
1: Or who do I want to pick up the phone when it rings at three o'clock in the morning? It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep. But there's a phone in the White House and it's ringing. Something's happening in the world. Your vote will decide who answers that
2: call. It's so weird that we have the same criteria for for presidents and booty calls. Anyway, Stan says a lot of young black voters (laughs) have had their political (laughs) (laughs) views shaped by. A says says a lot of young black voters have had their political views shaped by the Black Lives Matter movement, which is extremely policy focused.
5: And so something like ending cash bail is something young voters are familiar with and something that they expect from their politicians. And so that is not something Joe Biden really embraced, particularly initially in the campaign, because he was making a different bet on where the majority of the electorate was, that the biggest fear among folks was about beating Donald Trump and projecting that you could.
1: And as we've discussed before, that strong party identification is one of the unique things about this so-called black vote. Mm-hmm. For white people in the United States, voters, party identification usually follows ideology for the most yep. part. Right. If you're a white conservative, you're voting for Republicans. If you're a white liberal, you're voting for Democrats. For black folks, ideology is... it it plays a different role. And in a lot of aspects, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't. Almost all Black conservatives vote for Democrats. I'm going to say that again. Almost all Black conservatives vote for Democrats. In presidential elections, something like nine out of every 10 Black voters cast a ballot for a Democrat, which means Black voter turnout for Democrats is almost a one-to-one proposition. A Black vote is basically equal to a vote for a Democrat.
2: Right. And that's just not remotely true for any other constituency that the Democratic Party has been trying to court. And black people also vote at significantly higher rates than Latinx voters and Asian American voters. And in recent elections, at close to par with white voters.
1: Which is remarkable, Mm -hmm. given how many barriers are thrown in the way to keep black people from voting. And we're just going to shout out historian Carol Anderson right now. Look her up. If you don't know who she is,
2: she's been on the podcast before. But all of this is why over the last few years we've heard so many Democrats, so many Democratic strategists beating this drum about black turnout, about the suppression of black voters. There's just such a big return on investment for the Democrats when it comes to black votes that those people are arguing. It just makes sense for the party to spend all the energy and time and money making sure black people can and will vote than it does trying to win over people who are wishy-washy, you know so-called swing voters.
5: You have just a larger sect of black people um, who are part of the Democratic Party. You have a bigger range.
2: A state 100 again.
5: So it, it includes religious black Democrats. And so black Democrats are religious at a way higher rate than white Democrats are. Um, and and that kind of brings a kind of somewhat conservative through line, particularly on social issues. Uh, uh, you also just have a, a, a regional diversity that plays out. And so when we think about moderates, and this was a big frustration point in the primary for those covering it, sometimes we would always think about uh, who was doing well among kind of uh, ideological, I don't want to be taxed uh, for the Green New Deal moderates in, uh, in New Hampshire or in Iowa. But the biggest sect of moderates in the Democratic Party are black and somewhat Latino voters who don't necessarily think in the terms of the right left spectrum, but sometimes are called more cautious progressives. So they're uh, will not necessarily disagree with the further left position, but they prioritize things like trust and familiarity above uh, kind of the strict list mis- policy test we often talk about.
1: Which is what we heard from Denise. Mm-hmm. I know Joe Biden. And Biden was betting big on older black voters like Denise. It looked like a big gamble at first, right? Because Biden came in fourth in the Iowa caucuses. Then he came in fifth in the New Hampshire primary. His campaign was in bad shape. Maybe on its last legs, if we can remember that far back. (laughs) It was not good going into that South Carolina primary.
2: But see, things are different in South Carolina because there are very few black voters in Iowa and in New Hampshire, But in South Carolina, the majority of the Democratic primary electorate is black folks. Mm -hmm. And as we know now, South Carolina is when the whole race changed.
1: In more ways than one.
2: Those black voters in South Carolina, they rallied behind Biden to the point where he blew everyone else out of the water. He beat the second place finisher, Bernie Sanders, by nearly 30 points. And after that win, all the other Democrats started endorsing him. And Biden went on to win most of the Super Tuesday primaries.
1: So Biden's bet that this well of more moderate voters, we're talking about older, southern, black, cautious progressives, and I'm doing your air quotes here, as mm-hmm. Ested called them, <laughs> that bet paid off. And now Joe Biden's the presumptive nominee.
2: Mm-hmm. Of course, that is not the end of the story.
5: His bet was not incorrect. Obviously, he ends up winning the primary. But what it did not do was really motivate young people to be with him. When the economic news gets to be a bit much...
1: Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out
3: all
7: the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less.
2: The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick.
1: From NPR.
7: Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Blankets and extra pillowcases. Everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Get 10% off your first order and free shipping with promo code NPR only at brooklinen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Sometimes food is more than just food. It's an integral part of the community. So this year, Discover is giving $5 million to support Black-owned restaurants to places like Post Office Pies in Birmingham, Alabama, Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia, and hundreds more Black-owned restaurants in your local community all across the country. Learn how you can show your support at discover.com.
7: We're only months away from Election Day, and every week, or even every few hours, there's a new twist that could affect who will win the White House. To keep up with the latest, tune in to the NPR Politics Podcast every day to find
8: out
1: what happened and what it means for the election. Shereen. Jean. Code Switch.
2: Before the break, we were talking about these generational and ideological splits among Black voters as they pertain to one Joe Biden.
1: And we talked about what that meant during the primaries. Mm-hmm. So what might all that ambivalence among younger voters mean for Black turnout in the fall for the actual election?
2: As it happened, Jereen, I talked to one of the people tasked with tackling that very
7: problem.
8: My name is Simone D Sanders. I serve as one of the senior advisors for the Biden for President campaign. And what do I do? I like to say that a senior advisor means we do anything and everything. So <laughs> I serve as a senior advisor um, for like, outreach and political. And pre-COVID,
1: I used to travel with the vice president. Side note, Simone Sanders was the spokesperson for Bernie Sanders, no relation. back during the 2016 presidential campaign and she's only 30 so she was one of the younger black voters making a very different more progressive argument just a few years ago now part of her job is to win over those black voters who preferred her former boss
2: right and those young disaffected voters could be huge so in a primary there are not as many variables right like relatively speaking It's simple. If you win your party's base, if they show up, you're in pretty good shape. But general elections have so many more factors in play. And our presidential elections tend to be really, really close. So Simone said because black voters are such high leverage voters, just a modest bump in turnout in November could flip some key states.
8: The majority of voters in Michigan are white voters. The majority of the electorate Mm -hmm. in Michigan is white. However, Wayne County, the county in which Detroit sits in, in 2016, a 1% increase of voter turnout in Wayne County would have accounted for all of the votes that Democrats lost Michigan by. Wayne County are black voters. (laughs) So while the majority of the electorate in Michigan are not black voters, obviously, we have to do real work in speaking to black voters in Michigan,
1: particularly in Wayne County. When Biden's campaign was flailing, Simone was dispatched to South Carolina to try to win over black voters there. And like we said before the break, that primary ended up being the first domino to fall in Biden's favor.
8: The voters know the immense responsibility that they have as South Carolina voters. They know that people are looking um, to them to see what they're going to do. Who are they going to vote for? Who are they going to give golden tickets to um, on their way into Super Tuesday? And I will tell you that there were voters in South Carolina, some that had not made up their mind.
2: And there was one black voter in particular who everyone in South Carolina seemed to be waiting on.
8: Some people were saying, "Mm, I think I know who I'm going to vote for, but I also want to know who Jim Clyburn is going to vote for.
1: Mr. Jim Clyburn. And for those of you who don't know, Clyburn is a congressman from South Carolina, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. He's the majority whip in the House, which makes him the highest ranking black lawmaker in Congress. And before that, he was a respected civil rights organizer. And when he was elected to the House, he was the first black lawmaker from South Carolina in 95 years, since the 1800s. So his voice carries a lot of weight.
2: So we decided to get Jim Clyburn on the line.
1: Makes sense.
6: Uh, I knew I was going to vote for Joe Biden, but I had not decided exactly how to go about uh, endorsing him if I needed to.
2: Representative Clyburn said that during the primary, you hearing from person after person who said that they wanted to vote for Joe Biden, but they needed validation.
6: Uh, Because people with so many choices didn't know where to go. You had, what, three African-Americans in the race. You had... Men and women had people who had been there before. And so people really uh, had were anxious about what they were feeling, but didn't want to go to the polls, not knowing that there were people uh, like myself in leadership here in the House of Representatives uh, who could offer some validations for their feelings. So that's all I was doing.
2: Hmm. So when he endorsed Joe Biden, Clyburn said that thing that Taryn's mom said, we know Joe. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, Joe knows us. And that endorsement may have been the pivotal moment of the entire Democratic primary because 60 percent of the black voters in South Carolina said that Jim Clyburn's endorsement was an important factor in their decision on how to vote.
1: Wow. 60 percent said right? it was Representative Clyburn's endorsement. That's Huge, huge. And one thing that we need to mention, in case people don't know this, is that Representative Clyburn and Joe Biden are friends. They've known each other for decades. They're contemporaries. Biden is seventy-seven. Clyburn is eighty. And as respected as Jim Clyburn is, he is very much in the demographic that likes Joe Biden. Yep. South Carolina's black primary voters. They're older. They're more conservative. And, of course, in the general election, South Carolina doesn't even go Democrat. It goes Republican. The support for Joe Biden there doesn't really tell us that much about younger people in other places who are ambivalent about Biden when it comes to the general election.
2: Yeah, and I asked Jim Clyburn about that. Like, how would you make the case to young Black folks who look at Joe Biden's record on all these big issues that they care about and they just come away unimpressed?
1: Yeah.
6: One of two people will be sworn in as the next president of the United States on January 20th. It's going to either be Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And I would say to young people, take a look at these candidates. Look at their records. Don't keep telling me about the 1994 crime bill. The 1994 crime bill has some stuff in it that you said you would want. Hmm. So
2: Clyburn... Clyburn here, he went on to defend, you know, parts of the 94 crime bill. He said there were things in it like community policing, there was the Violence Against Women Act. And he said the Republicans took over Congress and basically stripped it of all those things and just left it with the most punitive components of it. And then he said, on the other hand, Donald Trump is doing terrible things right now, today.
6: That guy is sending stormtroopers into cities trying to create a riot. The same kind of stormtroopers that beat John Lewis within an inch of his life back in 1965, people forget that those weren't hoodlums off the streets that beat up those 600 people walking across that bridge. Those were law enforcement officers who got their orders from Sheriff Clark. And now we've got the same kind of stuff taking place in Portland, getting their orders from the White House. The governor didn't ask him to come into Oregon. The mayor didn't ask him to come to Portland. The president sent them there. And so while we're arguing over what may or may not have been in the 1994 crime bill, please, once again, compare Joe Biden to the alternative, not the almighty.
2: In that episode we did on Black Republicans last fall, I spoke to a political scientist, Cheryl Laird.
1: And if you haven't heard that episode, you need to go back and listen because it was great. Thank you. And in that episode, Cheryl said that because of this specific and unique proximity that Black people have to each other, hashtag housing segregation and and everything, Black people are uniquely good at enforcing the norm that Black people vote for Democrats.
2: And Cheryl has a new book out called Steadfast Democrats, which is about all those social forces that shape black voting behavior. And she said that everyone's voting is primarily social, but black people, it's a different beast. So Cheryl told me that it's black women in particular who are custodians of this norm that black folks should vote for Democrats.
1: Black women are more likely to vote than black men, and in some cases to be able to vote than black men. And even though the overwhelming majority of black men are still Democrats— are a little bit more likely to vote for Republicans.
2: Yep, and President Trump also has a higher approval rating among black men than he has among black women. I'm staring at the television audience at home silently. Anyway,
7: I mean, they, they are black women are the party. Like they are, they are the Democratic Party. Where the where black women go, so goes the party. Um, they are the most loyal to the party. Um even when they themselves may not see representation that reflects themselves, they are loyal to the party. So uh, they are there with Barack Obama, although he's he's black, he's a black man. They are there with Hillary Clinton more than any other racial group of women, even though she's white. Uh, and and a black women have long been, historically, just consistent um, participants in the norm and enforcers of, of, of the partisan norm.
2: So Cheryl said that, yes, Biden is going to have... Kind of a challenge with turning out young people in November. But she also said, when we think about these social forces, in the context of black voting, black women are force multipliers.
7: So black women don't just vote by themselves, right? They vote more with like the collective in mind and with the collective, right? So it's not just about mobilizing that one black woman to vote. That one black woman can mobilize like 10 other people.
2: This is something the media has hit on kind of awkwardly a bunch over the last few years.
5: <laughs> I've said this a bunch, I've said this on air. A bedrock truth is that anything good that happens in American politics, the cornerstone for that good thing happening, the electoral cornerstone it's are black women. This
7: is black, what women black women. Black women do uh in in elections they really turn out in huge numbers they are the democratic party's most loyal and consistent voters honestly black women are uh, the people who we count on to pull us over the finish line every election and i have no doubt that they will turn out in massive numbers this year because they were the part of the democratic constituency that didn't need trump getting elected and
2: so yeah this narrative is a little bit simplistic and it kind of sits uncomfortably close to some weird janky tropes about black women as caretakers but Black women are the social connectors in their communities. They're the church mothers. They volunteer at the polling centers. They lead registration drives. They volunteer for campaigns like Taryn. And Cheryl said, also, we're in a pandemic. A whole lot of younger Black voters who might not turn out in a different year, they are back home with their mothers or in closer contact with their aunties and all those other civically engaged older Black women.
1: Who are definitely going to the polls or voting from home or whatever we're going to do on November 3rd.
2: Exactly. So Cheryl was like, you really think they're going to let people stay home? Really? (laughs) Really?
1: No. And now we have the Kamala running mate news. Right, right. Will that be even more of a driving force to bring people out?
2: Well, I actually asked Cheryl about this, and that was before we knew it was going to be Kamala Harris specifically, but there were a few black women, obviously, like in the mix for the running mate spot. She said that, historically speaking... Whoever the nominee picks as a running mate, it doesn't really matter that much when it comes to turnout in the general election. But
7: I also think there's something to be said about the fact that, well, historically we don't have the counterfactual: well, what if your running mate is black? Like, <laughs> yeah. like what? If, what if? What if the person as the VP is black? Like, we don't actually have a test to understand what that would look like. So we can look at the data we have, but the data we have is missing a data point
1: a a huge one a huge
2: huge data point right what if the running mate is black and specifically what if that running mate is a black woman it might matter a lot to the people who make up the base of the party black women especially older black women that there is finally a black woman on the ticket
1: and a black woman who has called out joe biden for some of his past missteps when it comes to race Who could forget that debate where she brought up Biden's stance on busing? We've
4: also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist, and I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two. United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And you know there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school
1: every day. And that little girl was me. But like Biden, Jean, and I know you know this, Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris has her own controversial history when it comes to the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. She has been a prosecutor for most of her career. She was the AG of California, and she's gotten a lot of heat, especially here in California, for her, how shall I say this? Complicated. Yes, I said it. Mm-hmm. Complicated criminal justice record. And there are many black public intellectuals, many of whom are women, who put a spotlight on how some of Kamala Harris's decisions really hurt black people.
2: There's a whole lot there just in unpacking Kamala Harris's criminal justice history.
1: That's an entire episode in and of itself. Absolutely. Do you want us to do it? Tweet at us. <laughs>
2: um. So yeah, there are a lot of reasons younger black voters might be skeptical of a Biden Harris ticket. but representation is this thing that everyone assumes that black voters want, but obviously obviously it's much more complicated than that, right? There yes. were several black candidates running for the nomination. Uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, shout out to Deval Patrick. <laughs> uh, and oh, black I folks. forgot
1: Deval Patrick was in the race yeah. wait was Deval Patrick in the race?
2: Yeah, I, everyone forgot that Deval Patrick was in the race. I think Deval Patrick forgot. the Deval Patrick was in the race. And black folks, (laughs) old and young, obviously opted for other candidates instead who were not black.
1: But even if young black folks aren't convinced that Biden and Harris are the ones, they are going to be strongly encouraged. Strongly encouraged. Or dragged. (laughs) Whatever you want to say. Strongly, strongly encouraged to come out to the polls and vote for them. Why? Because it's the pragmatic thing to do.
2: And Cheryl said that that pragmatism, that's always been a defining feature of black voting. It's a kind of nose-holding for the greater collective good. Black people have been voting for janky, uninspiring white dudes for as long as we've had the franchise in this country. (laughs) And younger voters have less experience with this, but not loving the options in front of you. Like Cheryl says, that's just part of the deal of being a black voter.
1: A vote for a janky, uninspiring white dude.
2: It's a rite of passage.
7: The party politics of the U.S. has always been one that has been quite contentious and challenging for African-Americans. And I think as you get older, people become more pragmatic. Like, they're just like, this is what it is. Like, this is not it. It's not something that is going to be revolutionized overnight. It is a slow, slow moving train so for older black people they're like yeah we used to be a lot like you guys when we were younger um and have a particular ambitions and dreams for what we wanted from the politics but um we got some things and sometimes we had to uh uh stand down on other things but what we've realized is that it's it's hard like it's very hard to change things very fast
2: Before the primary vote, Taryn had been working on her mom. You know, she's trying to switch her over from Biden to Elizabeth Warren. Right. But she says she ain't even try when it came to her grandmother.
3: <laughs> I came home to Virginia to vote for Super Tuesday. And I was like, Granny, like, I was like, <laughs> I just knew. She just looked at me like the way that old black women look at you. I was like, move, step to the side. <laughs>
2: And Taryn was nudging her mom, but that really wasn't going nowhere either. I
3: didn't I didn't realize how deep her love for Joe Biden was. Uh, I, no, it's not a love. Okay. I didn't realize how deep her commitment to the
4: Joe Biden as a candidate was until much later. And I was like, I thought- but, but I will say this. When I did go in the voting booth, I did look at Elizabeth Warren for a long time. Really? Yeah, I did. Thanks to you. Oh, but I was thinking Joe Biden. Yeah, (gasps) I did stop and think about it. It's not that I just ran in there and just cast my vote. You know, I just ran and didn't do that. I did think about it. Okay. I appreciate it. But uh, but I remembered my vote counts. (laughs) And so I voted for Biden.
1: Taryn was zero for two (laughs) on her mother and grandmother so she doesn't have that much pool in her family, it seems like.
2: <laughs> yeah, she said she got it. Like, when describing her grandmother, she, again, used that word we keep hearing. She talked about pragmatism.
3: Again, she's from Mississippi, grew up in the Jim Crow South on a farm. Mm-hmm. Like, she has a very pragmatic um, approach to politics. You know, there there is a pragmatism, I think, that comes with, like, just trying to survive and, like, figure out how you make it out of a thing alive um Mm -hmm. that comes with with her framework for voting i think for me i had the opportunity to dream big and fight hard as some of my old colleagues used to say um about what imagining what a life beyond like the this landscape is
2: Hmm. yeah i mean it seemed like Taryn had kind of conceded to it in her own way, right? I mean, she wasn't thrilled about the prospect of voting for Joe Biden in November, you know?
3: I would rather, okay, like, work with what we got and, like, figure out some other things in the process.
4: Um, but, yeah, I mean... It's Survivor. It's, we're on, we're, it's Survivor out here. So you have to be running. It's, <laughs> it's food, water... Shelter, toilet paper, toilet paper, <laughs> bleach, wipes, Lysol wipes. <laughs> yeah, it's survival of the fittest. And one of the things
3: that I learned, I feel like that has been helpful, is just to like do the work in front of you, and like the work in front of us is to reduce harm, in my opinion.
2: So again, there are going to be so many factors that will come into play in this year's election, which will probably be really close. So many, you know, feel about the president or the economy, how enthusiastic Mm -hmm. people are about his challenger, one Joe Biden, even, you know, like Mm -hmm. things as like circumstantial as what the weather was like in some big cities and key states on that Tuesday in November.
1: And we can't forget about voter suppression. And all this is happening right now while we've got this global pandemic going on. So this is this is all making voting very difficult,
2: right? And like we said, the margins are going to be really thin. Like if everyone else holds the form as 2016, if black turnout is just a little higher this year than it was in 2016, the Democrats and Joe Biden necessarily will probably win the White House. For the people who are less than enthused, ultimately, that turnout might have as much or more to do with the pitches made to them by the old heads and especially older black women than anything that comes from the man who is running to be the next president all right y'all that is our show please follow us on twitter we're at mbr codeswitch You can follow Shireen at Radio Mirage, that's all one word, Radio Mirage, and me at GD215, that's G-E-E-D-E-E-215. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode was produced by Leah Donella and Jess Kung with help from Alyssa Jung Perry. It was edited by Leah.
2: And a big shout out to Julian Womble, a political scientist at George Washington University whose brain I picked at length for This episode. Appreciate you. Shout out to the rest of the Coast Wish Massive Kumari Devarajan, Karen Grigsby Bates, L.A. Johnson, Natalie Escobar, and Steve Drummond. I'm Gene Dumby.
1: I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Beesio. Peace. This is
4: fun. Thanks, Mom. You're welcome, babe. <laughs>
2: Back in the day, as Netflix began to gain
1: popularity,
5: its rival Blockbuster was looking for an edge.
0: At one point, the investors were asking Blockbuster <laughs> yeah. to sell jeans in the store.
1: Yeah, you just imagine these like older investors being like, you know what the kids want? They want jeans.
2: You get a Tom Cruise movie and some stonewashed jeans. The downfall of Blockbuster and the
5: rise of Netflix. Listen to It's Been a Minute from NPR.
8: Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them
6: on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction.
4: Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy
6: at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation.